for this morning, that you would make us what we ought to be through your powerful working in us. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the past uh, two weeks we've been looking at some end times passages in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5, so I want to very quickly recap where we've been, and then we'll get into the very end of the uh, book of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5. So at the, uh, we were at the end of chapter 4 two weeks ago, talking about the coming of the Lord. And how Christians in the early church apparently were concerned that those who had already died would somehow miss out on some of the events of the return of Christ. And so Paul assures them that this is not the case, that the dead in Christ would rise first and then those still alive would be caught up with them to meet the Lord in the air. And he said, he ended that section with uh, the idea that Christians should encourage one another with these words. Then last week we were looking at chapter 5 and verses 1 through 11, talking about the day of the Lord. And Paul reiterated that the day of the Lord would come. Uh, It would come suddenly. He he talked about how you can't predict it, but uh, we shouldn't be surprised as Christians. And he encourages Christians then to live as though they are in Christ. And again, he closes this section with the exhortation to encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So keep on doing this encouraging is how he ended the second. So twice, two two small passages in a row, he ends with the idea that we need to use these words, the words of Scripture, to encourage one another. So having said all of this, and in light of the blessed hope of the return of Christ, how does Paul close the letter? He gives some specific instructions for living here and now. Live in expectation, live in unity, live in grace. We are not to spend all of our time sitting on a hill waiting for the return of Christ. We want to be caught when he comes, doing the tasks that he's given us. So we want to live for him and be the church family that best represents Christ to the world. So let's read the end of 1 Thessalonians, starting at chapter 5, verse 12, to the end of the book. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil." Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
So Paul writes this for the benefit of the church. Not only that local church that initially received it, but these letters were called cyclicals. In other words, they would uh, copy them and pass them around to other churches so that all the churches could be encouraged. And here we are today being encouraged by it as well. So here is how we're to live together. And again, after he talks about the coming of Christ again, in the meantime, how are we to live together? So first of all, we go to verse 12 back again, and he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work and be at peace among yourselves. We live in a society in terms of world history that is unique. We have freedom of speech, including the right as citizens to say whatever we want about political leaders, short of threatening them, without fear of getting arrested or something like that. At least that's how the founders envisioned it. We have a fierce spirit of self-governance. We have a system where citizens get to vote, go to public hearings and call their councilmen and yell at them if they want. They can engage in discourse and disagreements of all kinds. It is no surprise then that often people in the church can feel entitled to pick apart any leadership decision, to vent anger at disagreements and so on. More than one church has split, not over doctrine, but some decision affecting the church building or the forming of a committee or something like that. There are churches that are congregational, meaning that just about every decision of the church is made by a vote of the congregation. And there's some positives to that. I don't want to throw that all under the bus, but there also is a danger there that people will take their civic freedoms as they are citizens in this country, and they'll try to apply that in the same way at the church. So we must guard our hearts against that. Doctrine should be very important, and doctrine does divide. And it is good to have discussions as we try to understand different doctrines or teachings of the church. However, what should not divide are disagreements over decisions that are not doctrinal. We have leaders that work hard and pray hard and try to consider all the implications of a decision. You have a group of elders that's a great group here at Oasis Church, and they care deeply for the flock. They agonize when people in the congregation are hurting. They've had to make some tough decisions, such as church discipline. And not everyone understands because they're protecting confidential matters and and so not everyone can know what's going on behind the scenes and and they don't know so the elders then can often become targets because someone doesn't have all the facts that they do and they take a risk in serving because people can be very harsh when they disagree i'm not saying that's the case here we haven't experienced that in any large part here but paul is saying here to the church respect those who labor among you Paul always encouraged people to honor proper authorities, both in the church and in the government. In Romans 13.1, he wrote, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Likewise, the writer to the Hebrews told them that for their own good, they should listen and obey their leaders. Uh, Hebrews 13, and starting at verse 7, says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And then further down, he says, 
Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You see, Hebrews 13 is pointing out something that people sometimes do not learn, but those who do learn it are blessed, and that is that the advantage to a follower is to follow in such a way that it is a joy to be led, for the leader to lead them. Perhaps you've experienced or observed a parent with a very difficult child, and you see how wearisome it is for that parent, how the role of parent is a burden. It doesn't seem very joyful. And you have seen parents with compliant children and how the child just seems to make it joyful for that parent to guide them in life. And I'm not talking here about parents who are so overbearing that they've molded their child to be compliant in an unhealthy way. And I'm not talking about toddlers when I talk about difficult children. Certainly, toddlers can be a handful. And I wouldn't want to judge the parent whose two-year-old's having a rough day. But once those children are in the preteens and teens, you can see those personalities coming out. Some children are submitted because they've figured out life is much more pleasant when they are obedient and respectful to their parents. In the church, you will usually find that if the church is healthy all around, it is also healthy in the area of giving respect and honor to leadership, which I believe Oasis Church does a fantastic job of. And when Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians, he certainly links it to church unity at the end of verse 13. If we respect and esteem those who are leading us, we will be at peace among ourselves. So in the church, we must resist the temptation to do what many of us love to do when talking about our love or dislike for the president, our love or dislike for the governor, our love or dislike for our mayor or city council. In the church, we have a different way of handling disputes than in the public square. We go to individuals we have issues with directly, as Jesus commanded in the Sermon on the Mount. We do not handle disputes in the church in the same ugly way as our politicians sadly do quite often. Now that Paul has addressed respect for leadership, he now gives some general encouragements to the church. These are ways for us to live and build one another up. So let's take a look at them. Verse 14, he says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. There are four imperatives in in this sentence alone. Admonish, encourage, help, and be patient. So first of all, admonish the idle. This word can mean idle in the sense of lazy or unwilling to work, and it also could mean disorderly or behaving irresponsibly. Often we may see the word, the word admonish and we think that it's always like a rebuke, but the word in the Greek manuscripts means something more like a teaching type. In other words, teach the idol their error and teach by example what they should do. Next, encourage the faint-hearted. Certainly in the church you will find those whose faith may not be so strong. And there are those who always seem to be faltering in their faith. Our temptation may be to be frustrated with them. But rather than being frustrated with them, may we instead encourage them. If you know someone whose faith always needs encouraging, perhaps you need to reframe your thinking. You may think they have something they need to do to increase their faith. 
Rather, why not see it as something that is your responsibility to help with? Encourage them. Again, this need not be the sort of rebuking attitude that many pious-feeling Christians may be tempted towards. Rather, let it be done with gentleness and love. Give them examples of God's faithfulness that they will understand and be helped by. And then he says, help the weak. This goes together with the one above. Let's compare it to physical weakness. If, if you were pretty weak and you decided, I'm going to go try to learn how to lift weights at the gym, you may go in and realize pretty quickly you need some help. And how encouraging is it when someone who is a strong will come along and help you? Or perhaps you've been out trying to carry something heavy from your car and you can't lift it. How wonderful it is when a strong person comes and helps you. Romans 15.1 says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. I've used physical strength as an illustration, but I hope you can see it's not only physical strength we're talking about here. So we want to be patient with all. That's easy said. Not so easy to live out. Be patient with the idle, the faint-hearted, the weak, and others who have struggles. Then in verse 15, it says, See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. In the church, there should never be a sense of retribution. We are not like the world. If someone in the church wrongs us, we are not to retaliate. We are to seek the good of everyone. Does that mean being a carpet that other people wipe their feet on? No, but it means not going and doing retaliation type things. Elsewhere, Paul has written that we are to consider others as being in higher esteem than ourselves. Then in verse 16 through 18, he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So these are marked out as three separate verses, but they're actually one complete thought. You can't do one of these without the other. You can't rejoice if you aren't praying and giving thanks. You will have a hard time praying if you don't rejoice or have gratitude. These should be constant factors in our lives. This is the life of the believer, always rejoicing, always praying, always giving thanks. Why? Because this is the will of Christ, the will of God in Christ for us. Now, Paul wrote in the previous chapter that the will of God is our sanctification. Now, is he contradicting himself here? Not at all. For rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks are part and parcel to the sanctification we go through. And then in verse 19, he says, Do not quench the Spirit. Quench means to snuff out or extinguish. Now, the Spirit cannot be extinguished in a real way, Humans aren't capable of doing any damage to the Spirit because the Holy Spirit is God, infinite in all the attributes of God. Man cannot snuff out the Spirit. So what does Paul mean here? Well, many have taken this, especially in the last century or so, to mean resisting things like speaking in tongues or wild charismatic manifestations of the Spirit. However, it's very unlikely that that's what Paul had in mind here. It actually doesn't make sense that the Spirit could be quenched from those things since Scripture tells us that the Spirit goes where He wills and gives gifts as He wills. Rather, I think the context itself gives away the meaning uh, that Paul is getting at in verse 19. So when we look at 19 to 21 altogether, 
He says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good. Okay, so do not despise prophecies. Well, what does prophecies mean? Well, the majority of theologians throughout history have not taken this passage to mean new prophecies or someone standing up in the church to give a new, thus says the Lord, or I have a word from the Lord for you. Prophecy in Scripture can mean that, but usually it means something more like explaining the Lord's will, which can mean further explaining the Scriptures. Calvin said this about the passage. He said, By the term prophecy, however, I do not understand the gift of foretelling the future, but as in 1 Corinthians 14.3, the science of interpreting Scripture, so that a prophet is an interpreter of the will of God. For Paul, in the passage which I have quoted, assigns to prophets teaching for edification, exhortation, and consolation, and enumerates, as it were, these departments. Let, therefore, prophecy in this passage be understood as meaning interpretation made suitable to present use. Paul prohibits us from despising it if we would not choose of our own accord to wander in darkness. End quote. So Calvin clearly took this type of prophecy that Paul is writing about here to be something like expository preaching. And this is what Paul meant elsewhere when he said he would rather have people prophesy than speak in tongues. Why? Because that would build up the church. Now Matthew Henry agreed with Calvin about what Paul was talking about here regarding it being about preaching. Matthew Henry said, By prophesyings here we are to understand the preaching of the word, the interpreting and applying of the scriptures, and this we must not despise, but should prize and value, because it is the ordinance of God appointed of him for our furtherance and increase in knowledge and grace in holiness and comfort. We must not despise preaching. Though it be plain and not with enticing words of man's wisdom, and though we be told no more than what we knew before, it is useful and many times needful to have our minds stirred up, our affections and resolutions excited to those things that we knew before to be our interest and our duty. End quote. So how do we quench the Spirit? We quench the Spirit by resisting the preaching of the Word of God or in some cases, preferring to have mystical experiences, such as those put forth by someone who says, you really don't need to waste so much time in Bible study, for the Spirit will speak to you in your lonely times, and that's really all you need. But the Bible teaches us very clearly that man's heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. How can we know if what we feel is a word from the Lord is really from him and not from our own evil desires, which James say tempt us. Not to mention that we have a big problem if men today can say they've heard from the Lord directly. Why? Because if they have, it must be absolutely true, completely without error. If someone hears from the Lord, just follow the logic with me, if someone did hear from the Lord, does God ever lie? No then whatever they heard would be equivalent to Scripture, right? In authority. They would say, no, that's not what I mean. But logically, that has to be the case. If God speaks to you to tell me something, if it is God, then I must take that just as seriously as I take anything in Scripture. 
What then if someone tells you that God told them to tell you to quit your job? You must do it. God told them after all. Yet we could not live like this. We need a standard. We need a measure. We use the word canon to describe the books of the Bible that the church has accepted as being the true scriptures of the church. Canon means measuring rod. Nothing else holds as much weight as Scripture. As the church has always said in council after council that the canon is closed. It cannot be added to. Therefore, we cannot take the words of a man who says he doesn't need so much study of Scripture because he hears from the Lord in his basement. We must go to the Word. The Westminster Confession says the Word of God contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments is the only rule to direct us how to glorify and enjoy Him. In other words, it is Scripture and nothing else that should guide us. God speaks to us by His Word. By the way, the attitude of hearing from the Spirit, so therefore not needing so much Scripture study, that didn't just arise in the 1900s with Pentecostalism. It was a problem in Calvin's day, too. He wrote something that could easily be used to describe many charismatics today. After what he wrote, what I just quoted a moment ago, he continued and said this, The statement, however, is a remarkable one for the commendation of external preaching. And then he says this about those who think that they can just hear the Spirit or whatever and they don't need the Word. He said, It is the dream of fanatics that those are children who continue to employ themselves in the reading of Scripture or the hearing of the Word as if no one were spiritual unless he's a despiser of doctrine. They proudly, therefore, despise the ministry of man, nay, even the Scripture itself, that they may attain the Spirit. Farther, whatever delusions Satan suggests to them, they presumptuously set forth as secret revelations from the Spirit. Such are libertines and other furies of that stamp. And the more ignorant that anyone is, he is puffed up and swollen out with so much greater arrogance. Let us, however, learn from the example of Paul to conjoin the Spirit with the voice of men, which is nothing else than his organ. In other words, what Calvin was saying is, You better be really careful with someone who says, I don't need to read the word of God because I hear from him directly. It is clear when Paul wrote, do not despise prophecies, he was referring to prophecies already given, that is what is contained now in scripture for us, and the preaching of those. Despising these is trying to quench the spirit who inspired all of the writings of scripture. We are to test everything. So whatever we hear, whenever we hear spoken, that needs to be tested against the word of God. We should prayerfully be seeking the scriptures to test all teachings we hear. Test my preaching. Hold fast to teachings that are good and in line with scripture. Abstain from any evil teachings. We do not accept bad doctrines. We do not accept false teachers. We test them. This happens too little in the church today. There is an enormous lack of discernment. Spurgeon said discernment is not knowing right from wrong. It's knowing right from almost right. We should care deeply about doctrine and knowing God's word. We should strive to be all of us professors of theology, at least in the sense of knowing our Bibles very well, so that we will know when we are being lied to by a false teacher. 
So after giving all of these very strong exhortations, now Paul is going to end his section with a prayer, verses 23 to 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So here Paul gives us a great encouragement as he reminds us that sanctification is God's work. Those truly in Christ will be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's his work. His work and our cooperation, his faithfulness, his completion of the work, and he is reliable. And then Paul finishes it out with, Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So as we close this message together, and it's a little shorter than normal, but that's uh, okay, right? Um, Remember to be praying. Pray for those that you've been praying for, that you're hoping that will come to Christ, that God will draw them to himself, that he'll give you opportunities. Invite them. Take those invites that we have. Please use them. You need to seek out those people. You need to remember that someone cared enough about you to invite you to church or to invite you and share the gospel with you over lunch or wherever you came to Christ. Someone cared enough to share. Do we care enough to share? So brothers, pray for us, Paul writes. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. And then he says, I put you under oath to have this letter read to all the brothers and reminds them once at the end, the grace of Lord Jesus Christ is with them. And so let's consider all of these things together. Let's consider that God has given us in this short passage some very tough things to try to do. How we take care of one another in the church. How we obey and submit to our leadership in the church. How we obey the gospel and how we relate to one another. But let us remember at the end there what he showed us. That it is God's work. He's doing the sanctifying work in us. And so we must not get discouraged and say, I've missed the mark. When you miss the mark, you repent and you move forward and you go forward in God's grace and you do better the next time. God's Holy Spirit will empower us. God doesn't give us things that he commands us to do without empowering us to do them. And so we need to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to do all of these things. And we need to stay in God's word so that we do not get fooled by the bad doctrines that are out there. And believe me, there is tons of them. You don't have to go very far on Facebook or YouTube or wherever to find all kinds of bad teachings. In fact, I'm considering next year after the beginning of the year doing maybe some kind of a study on some of the false teachings that are out there, uh, some kind of an evening uh, teaching that we might do. So uh, if you're interested in that, let me know because I'm not decided yet whether I'll do it. But anyway, uh, I want to close with this. We've been praying for a, a while now. And many of you wrote down names of people you were praying for. Many of you have already invited some of them. Some of them have already come and visited once or twice. And I've also given you a plain warning that this is risky business. When you invite people to church, they might come here and they might hate the message so bad that they never talk to you again or never treat you the same again. You may lose friends because you invited them to church or shared the gospel with them. 
but yet it is our Lord's command to us to do that. And so we, we need to have the confidence that he'll enable us to do it. So next week is our, is our week. We've been preparing for this for months. And I thank the many people who are getting things ready for each Sunday, these special activities we have. It's going to be really, really awesome. We're going to have great music. We're going to have good, hopefully good preaching and uh, good fellowship. But what we need is for you to get them here. And so please take those invites and do that. And let's close with a word of prayer, and then I'm going to sing the doxology, and we're going to sing it together as we take the offering. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word, Lord, that strongly challenged us this morning, and yet we know that it's your desire for us to obey it. And I pray, Lord, that we would be obedient children to you, our Father. I pray that you would empower us by the power of your Holy Spirit to do the work you've called us to do. And that you will bless our efforts, Lord. That during this coming season, we will see new souls coming to Christ. Because they have sensed the love of Christ. Because they've heard the word of God. And most importantly, Lord, because you've drawn them to yourself. Please, Lord, give us that privilege, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. And as the deacons come forward to uh, give the offering, Brandon did leave right after the last song.